privilege to come before your word, to come before your word humbly, to let it speak to us, to what we love, to our affections, to our lives. Lord, as we uh, look to your word today to understand um, giving and, and what giving is and what your word requires of us, Lord, may we have soft hearts that are receptive to that. Lord, may we see the glory of the gospel in giving. May we see your goodness and your kindness to us. Lord, would you help us to know how to live faithful and obedient lives to you uh, in this area and, and in others as well. Lord, we want to pray for uh, the Reisters again today as we continue to pray for them throughout this month. Lord, we thank you for um, the praises that they've shared with us, that uh, the uncertainty of, of things has prompted people to, uh, to search spiritually where they live and that they serve. And and so, Lord, we just thank you that people are looking, but Lord, would you help them to, to be able to speak uh, the truth of the gospel and, and, and that people might see the gospel and hear and understand what you have done for us. Lord, we know that the, the fundamental worldview there is very different than, uh, than a biblical worldview. And so we pray that you would not only help them to share the gospel and that people would believe it and receive it, but Lord, we pray that they and us would be uh, faithfully able to look at the world around us through the lens of your word and understand things not according to culture, but according to Christ. Lord, we pray that there would be, um, uh, that, that there would just be great discipleship of new believers as there is uh, very, very high pressure in that society to conform. Lord, we, we feel that, maybe not the same, to the same degree or in the same ways, but but there is a pressure and a pressing upon us to conform to the norms of society. And may we and they and the believers who, who they serve there be committed to conforming to, to you and to your word and to the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help them by both life and word. And we pray the same for us again as well, Lord. That by life and word we would have a, a compelling gospel witness to the world around us. Lord, we want to also pray for Jeannie Thompson today as she continues to recover from her surgery. Lord, we thank you that they uh, believe that they found the problem uh, with, uh, with her back and, and have corrected some things to bring about a relief from pain. And Lord, as she is still over in Portland through tomorrow, at least um, recovering before she can come home, Father, we pray that, that she would be able to be comfortable where she is, that she would be able to have a quick recovery. Lord, ultimately, we pray for alleviation from pain as she has been so, uh, so hindered and hurted by the things that are going on with her back. Lord, would you, uh, would you just bring healing to her? Father, um, accept this time as we look to your word as, as a, a pleasing and acceptable act of worship to you. And we ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I am surprised after seeing today's outline that so many of you are still here. Um, it's tempting as a pastor to conceal both the topic and uh, the title and the points of your sermon when you're preaching on giving. Um, it's actually not. That's really, really a joke. Uh, scripture speaks to giving, and so we should, uh, we should listen attentively. But what has prompted this is not just the proposal of a budget, which is available at the guest services counter that is uh, that is somewhat risky, but uh, I've had some conversations lately 
And they've been wonderful conversations. And I've had permission to share these conversations. But, but the questions have come to me, how much do we give? Where does 10% come from? Are we supposed to give 10% on the gross or on the net before taxes, after taxes? Do giving to missions and, and missionaries and other organizations count as part of our 10%? And these are all good-hearted questions. Except the answer is, nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to give 10%. To which the response has been a little bit of perplexity. We're not commanded anywhere in Scripture to give 10%? No. In fact, the only place you can find that a tenth was given was after Lot was taken captive out of Sodom and, and the people in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, were, were taken uh, captive by these five kings in Genesis. Abraham takes his trained men, that's a Hebraism for soldiers, and he goes and he conquers these five kings and he brings them back, uh, brings back the spoil and the people. And on the way, he meets Melchizedek, who is king in Salem, which we call today Jerusalem, who is also a priest of God. And he's really this very unknown character in scripture, but he is both priest and king. And Abraham pays him a tenth of the spoils of, the, of war. The 90%, the other 90% he gives back. Abraham didn't keep anything. In fact, we could probably say of the spoils of war that day, Abraham did not just give 10%. He gave 100% of what he had gone and captured. And so this is the only place in Scripture where 10% is commanded. And tithe is an Old Testament idea. And it was a combination of both what we consider giving to the church, or often called tithing, and taxes. Because Israel was a theocracy. Its faith was its government. And so there was not a separation or a distinction of giving in terms of taxes or tithes. You can see this in the New Testament when, when they're arguing, the Pharisees are arguing, do we pay to Caesar or to the temple? And Jesus says, bring me a coin. Whose image on it? It's Caesar's. Well, render to see, unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Really, the, this idea of tithe, then, is nowhere repeated in the New Testament. I'm going to say that again. The concept of tithe is nowhere in the New Testament. Well, then why do we give to the church, and why do we take an offering? Well, because giving is part of, this is the New Testament concept, our stewardship. That is 100% of what you have, whether that be in terms of retirement, bank accounts, homes, investments, or anything else, 100% belongs to the Lord and you're just a caretaker. You're just a steward taking care of what belongs to somebody else. So the New Testament demands 100% of what we have be given to God, not in terms of offering. Scripture even tells us how to spend it, and this is called stewardship. So uh, let me share with you a few thoughts on how Scripture tells us to spend our money. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that we are to provide for our families. 
So serious, this, so serious is this command that a believer who is unwilling to, to provide for his family is called in this text in 1 Timothy 5, worse than an unbeliever. How could a believer be worse than an unbeliever? Well, because we know better. As Christians, we have a theology of work. We have a theology of family. And so we are to know better. And so 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us to provide for our families. Romans 13.8 requires us to pay off our debts. And Proverbs 21 and 30, specifically 21.20 and 30.25, tell us to save for the future. But after these obligations have been met, after we have provided for our families and paid our bills or debts and even have set aside some to save, we are freed then as believers in Christ to be generous and even sacrificial in our giving. And we give for many reasons. We're going to explore some of those today. We give for the work of the ministry. We give because it's how the church uh, functions and is able to continue the ministry and the work that it does. We give to the poor out of care and love for those who, who are less fortunate than we are. But really, Scripture presents to us in many ways, and I'm not going to take the time to flesh all of this out today because we're going to move fast through these 12 points. Really fast. So buckle up. Um, but, uh, but, but Scripture tells us to give as an act of war against our own hearts. That we give to fight our own um, uh, just love of stuff, our own consumerism, our own worldliness. Our, our hearts are easily drawn to the things of this world. This is why Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We give, we give and we give sacrificially as an act of dependence upon the Lord. We, we give to fight our own greed. We give to fight our love and our affection for stuff. And lest we think that the, the issue of giving is not important there is only, outside of the Gospels, the four Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, so in the rest of the New Testament, there is only one direct quote of Jesus. Much of what Jesus said is referenced to, but Acts 20, 35 is the only direct quote of Jesus outside of the Gospels, and it says this, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The only direct quote of Jesus in the rest of the New Testament is about giving. And so it's a topic worthy of giving our attention to. Let's look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and see what Paul teaches us about giving. There's much more in chapters 8 and 9 about giving than we're going to cover today, and next week we will return to Matthew, but we're going to give our attention to these, uh, this text today. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." 
And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. And so the context of this passage that we read is that Paul is writing to believers in Corinth and he is telling them to to join in the ministry of other churches, particularly Macedonian churches, in in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Now, as we read Acts, we see that the, 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 um, the church in Acts grew exponentially. In, in Israel, there was throughout the year certain times where journeys, pilgrimages, if you will, to Israel was required. And as, as people came from all over to Jerusalem, and as the church was thriving there, the, the, God added to, the num- to their number day by day those who were being saved, and sometimes in the, in the thousands of people in one day. And the economy in Jerusalem could not keep up with the growth of the church. Imagine with me, if you would, a church that was not committed to entertainment or ear tickling, but to faithful preaching of the gospel, to prayer, to communion and baptism, and to fellowship, aka hospitality, in homes with such a public and visible witness and delight in one another that the church outgrew the city of the capital of Israel. So much so that they couldn't feed the church. And so churches around the world began to give to the church there in Jerusalem. That's the context or, or of, of chapter 8. But, but the larger context is that of the Macedonians who gave generously and who gave sacrificially, but out of their deep poverty. Macedonia was an area that was taxed to death by Rome and ravaged by war. It was the poorest of the poor in this area. And yet Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, a hub of not only economy but religion there in Greece and and. The Macedonians, the poor, war-ravaged, possessionless Macedonians were the example to the Corinthians. And so Paul uses this example of the Macedonians to show the Corinthians and us how to give. So let's look at 12 characteristics of Christian giving, and we are going to move fast. Number one, Christian giving is motivated by grace. Christian giving is motivated by grace. In this opening verse, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about not the giving of the Macedonians, but about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Clearly, the church in Corinth was not aware of their giving. They weren't going around bragging about it, but Paul is making it known to them that this very poor, war-ravaged, taxed-to-death area uh, in the northern part of, of Greece there uh, was, was setting an example. And it wasn't, what he wants us to understand is that it wasn't their wealth that motivated them to give. It wasn't their extreme abundance. It wasn't that they had more than they needed. 
It wasn't that they were whatever a trillionaire in that day would have been and they had no concept of money and had so much that they were just able to give. They gave out of their extreme poverty and it wasn't wealth that motivated them to give. It was the, it was the grace of God. Specifically, look with me at, here at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The picture that Paul paints for us is that the eternal God, the creator of all things, the ruler of heaven and earth, the second member of the triune God, Jesus Christ, possessing everything, all power, all authority, all might, in absolute sovereign control of all things. We sang today about how God is working out his plan. Do you believe that, that God is working out a plan in your life? That he is sovereignly in control? A God whose wealth makes the Warren Buffetts and whoever else you want to think of in this day and age look like paupers. He owns everything. And yet, he sees us in our depravity, in our sin, in our brokenness, in our misery, really on our hell-bound plight. And he says, I'll set it all aside. I'll become one of them. I'll leave heaven I'll leave the control of all things. I'll subject myself to their experience. I'll be born in a stable. My parents will sacrifice birds at my circumcision because they won't be wealthy enough to sacrifice a bull. I'll grow up to be a man without a home, homeless and dependent upon others, despised, abandoned, denied, persecuted, fraudulently accused and charged, beaten, I read in Psalm 22, until you could see his bones crucified, though he had never done anything wrong, buried in a grave that he couldn't even afford. Why? So that, as we read in Ephesians 1, he might bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This blows my mind. When Christ decided to bless us, he didn't bless us with every earthly blessing. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He says, when you come to me in faith, when you trust my righteousness, not your own, when you believe that it is my death and resurrection that covers your sin and puts you in right standing with me and with my Father, you gain every spiritual blessing. He didn't just give us a little bit. All of that that he left, he gives to us. And we're invited in, adopted into his family as co-heirs with Christ who will rule in the new heaven and the new earth with him. He shares it all. He became poor far more than we could ever understand. He gave sacrificially to a degree that we will never comprehend. 
so that we might become rich. This is what Paul means when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And I know what you're thinking. How is this fast, Logan? But we're going to start moving now, okay? Because that is the most important thing. If we don't understand the gospel, we'll never understand giving. If we don't understand what Christ gave up for us and what he gave to us, we will never understand Christian giving. Secondly, giving is not halted by hardship. Christian giving is not halted by hardship. Look with me at verse 2. Here Paul says, For in a severe test of affliction and their extreme poverty... The fact was that they were, they were incredibly poor, and it did not stop their giving. Inflation does not halt Christian giving. Gas prices don't halt Christian giving. Grocery prices don't halt Christian giving. Tests of affliction and extreme poverty don't halt Christian giving. It might inform it. It might change it. But it certainly does not halt it. I have spoken in some places of a, a missionary friend of ours who our church in Tucson supported. Uh, and he was from Mexico City, but he was in Russia. He went to a meal at the home of a Russian man where the meal provided that night probably cost the man about a month's salary. And at the end of the meal, he, he put enough money in Gallo's hand to amount to all of about what we would think of as about five bucks. It was an insignificant amount of money in, to Gallo. It was an incredibly significant amount of money to this man. And he puts the money in Gallo's hand. And Gallo immediately tried to give it back. And he said, he said no, you need this. This guy had just spent a month's salary on feeding Gallo one meal. He's like, no, you keep that. And he reached over and he closed Gallo's hand around the money and he pushed his hand back and he looked at Gallo and he said, don't deny me the joy of giving to the Lord's work. Hardship did not halt his giving. It informed it. It did not halt it. Thirdly, and this brings us similarly to the, the, next, or the last point, is that Christian giving is the natural outcome of joy. Christian giving is the natural outcome of joy. Paul says that it is their abundance of joy and, listen to this combination, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. This is the one-two punch. The first punch is that the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he made himself poor to make us rich, results in an abundance of joy. And that joy is, in, is not in earthly things, but rather it is in God. And so the first punch is that their joy was not related to their circumstances. The second punch is that they were extremely poor. How in the world does extreme poverty result in gracious giving? The first makes sense. Christ gave graciously, we give graciously. How does extreme poverty result in gracious giving? The less you have, the less you hold on to it. The less you have, the less you cling to the things of this world. This is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What we, when we take hold of God, we, we naturally 
must loosen our grip on the things of this world. What are you wrapping your hands around? A portfolio? A bank account? A career? Your children's athletic events? What does your time and money reveal that you are wrapping your hands around? Because the tighter we cling to the Lord, the less our our grip is on those things. Fourthly, Christian giving is generous. Notice how they gave. Their giving, uh, because of their uh, abundance of joy and their extreme, extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on, that, on their part. Christians should never be Scrooges. It should not be, and it is, I've sought to confirm it, you can find it clearly documented, that the post-church crowd is the lowest tipping crowd at a restaurant. Shame on us. Christian giving must be generous. Christian giving, fifthly, is proportionate to income. Notice that they gave according to their means. And, as we're told, beyond their means. This is where that generosity comes from. But Christian giving is proportionate to their income. I've heard many people, especially uh, older people, who are on fixed incomes say, I wish I could give more. You know who doesn't necessarily wish you could give more? The Lord. He is perfectly pleased by your giving being proportionate to your income. It's not the amount he's concerned about. The widow's two mites were so significant because it was proportionate to her income, not because the amount that it was. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. And believe it or not, where your treasure is, there your heart is, not the other way around. Your heart will be where you place your treasure. You place your treasure in this life and there's where your heart will be. You invest it in the next and that's where your heart will be. Don't forget that part of this is that we are required to save for the future. It's not a call to foolishness. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 8.12 If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. God doesn't want you to give according to what you don't have. He wants us all to give according to what we do. It's not the amount that is of ultimate importance. Sixthly, Christian giving is sacrificial. They not only gave according to their means, verse 3, but they gave beyond their means. Christian giving is sacrificial. Throughout Scripture, God's people have been unwilling to give something to the Lord that doesn't cost them. Whether it's a field to build a temple or an altar or to sacrifice, his people have refused to offer him what is free. God does not desire us to re-gift something, and neither do you. There's a reason why when you re-gift something, you try and keep that secret. It's kind of meaningless. Somebody gave me something they didn't want. Now I'm giving it to you because I don't want it. Ah, Lord, somebody gave me something that cost me nothing. And now I give to you this excellent gift that cost me nothing. 
God doesn't want what costs us nothing. We give so that it affects our lifestyle to fight worldliness, to fight consumerism, maybe even to fight fear. You think of that? It's usually not the poor who are afraid of tomorrow. Seven, our Christian giving is voluntary. They gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. Giving must be voluntary. Scripture tells you to, but it doesn't tell us how much, and it never tells the church to police it. Unlike the Mormon church, we're never going to open the books of your business to see how much you give. What you give is between you and the Lord, and it must be voluntary. Eighth, Christian giving is a privilege. Notice verse 4, that the Macedonian, poor, impoverished church, was begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This brings us back to Gallo. Don't deny me the joy of taking part in the Lord's work. Ninth, Christian giving is an act of worship. It is an act of worship. Uh, Here in verse 9, we're told, and this, this giving, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave themselves first to the work of the Lord where they were. They gave themselves first to the work uh, of the church where they were in Macedonia. Then they gave to the relief of the saints. Then they gave to the missions work of Paul and his uh, his, companions. Fellows, if you will. The word is escaping me. But the reality is we give first to the church and then beyond. Tenthly, even though we don't compel you to give, Christian giving is overseen by elders and pastors. Christian giving is overseen by elders and pastors. Uh, The second half of verse 5 and 6, they gave first to the Lord And then by the will of God to us, this is giving to an apostle for the work of the relief of the saints and for the spread of the gospel. Accordingly, we urged Titus, who is serving as a pastor there in Corinth, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Paul the apostle gave instructions to Titus the pastor to to inform the church of giving, to complete among them this act of grace. Giving is a ministry overseen by the elders. We do this in, in forms of presenting budgets. We do this in the form of preaching God's word on giving and not hiding what God's word says. We do this in terms of sharing info with you in the worship folder of where we're at in terms of giving and budget and what's in the bank. You can find out anything and what we spend it on at any time. It's public record and we spend according to your authorization. It is overseen by the elders. Number 11, and this is why it's overseen by the elders, and here's maybe the two most important parts. Christian giving is equally important to other virtues. Christian giving is equally important to other virtues. Look at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, and then he defines that, in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and love, see that you excel in this act of grace also. If you think giving 
and cutting ties and allegiances to this world and fighting consumerism and greed in our own hearts is less important than faith, than knowledge, than preaching, than earnestness, than love, then you need to examine this verse. What we give, while not compelled, but commanded, while not checked on, but overseen, is every bit as important to the Lord as the other virtues that get listed here. We are to love one another. We are to demonstrate faith. We are to preach the word. We are to know him. But how we give is as important as these other virtues. And we are to excel in it as we excel in the others. And I think it would do, we would do well to ask the question of ourselves, am I striving to excel in any of them? Or am I content with just letting things ride as they are? Are you seeking to excel in your faith? To excel in your speech? To excel in your knowledge of God? To excel in your earnestness in worship? To excel in love and to excel in giving? And twelfth and finally, Christian giving is the proof of love. Christian giving is the proof of love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. I say all of this, that's what the this is there, not as a command. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver. Everyone has to give according to how they've determined in their own heart. So he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. When you can't give to the poor, you prove what you love. When you don't give to missions or to the church, and it's really never a matter of can't, it's a matter of don't. When we don't give to the church, when we don't give to the grocery budget to exercise hospitality in our homes, when we don't give to missions, when we don't give to, the, to, to meet the needs of the poor, we prove what we love. Christian giving is a proof of our affections. What you do with your money will prove what you love. And so the question is, what do you love? What do you love? Maybe you need to start giving. Maybe, maybe you need to love the world a little less. Maybe you're like, I'm pinching pennies. And I'm as poor as I could possibly be. It's not the amount. It's the heart. Maybe you need to start giving. Maybe you need to give regularly. Maybe you need to move from giving regularly to giving sacrificially. Maybe you already are giving sacrificially. I don't know. I don't know what anybody gives. I don't have access to that information. I don't want access to that information. I don't want to pastor anybody from that standpoint. But the reality is, we want to be a thriving church. We want to meet budget. We want to propose this, this new budget and meet it because we want to be a church that, that uh, is, is a vibrant, worshiping church. And then we want to get out in the community and invite others to be worshipers too. We want to be a church that's passionate about worship and biblical preaching, that meets community needs, that spreads the gospel. 
But as a church, as leaders, at elder, as elders, we can only move at the speed of your generosity. Would you consider being generous as we seek to, to do some risky things this, this budget year? And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we know that you deserve our affection. You deserve our love. You deserve our delight in you and in you alone. Lord, would you help us to see and understand that none of this is really about money, that it's about our hearts. It's about what we love. It's about where we lay up treasure. It's about what we pursue. Lord, maybe there are some today who are unnecessarily weighed down by guilt when they shouldn't be. Would you free them from that? Would you encourage the hearts of those who give regularly and sacrificially to the work of the ministry? And Lord, maybe there are some of us who need to be convicted to either give it all or to, uh, to, to give more sacrificially or to give sacrificially to start, to, to wage war against our own consumerism and love of stuff and, 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 and desire to control our own destinies and futures. May we trust you with all things. May we excel in all of these things. May we excel in faith and knowledge and speech and love and in giving. Not just so that we can excel as a church here in Walla Walla, but so that the gospel might be spread to the ends of the earth. Let us never be content with gospel spread overseas and ignore it here. Let us never be content with the spread of the gospel here and ignore it over the seas. But Lord, let us, let us care deeply about the spread of the gospel everywhere for the sake of the lost, for your glory, and for the loosening of our grip on the things of this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.